9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello there, and welcome to a special edition of the podcast, one of our conversations with noted authors. We're extremely fortunate to have with us today Karen Tumulty, who is well-known columnist for the Washington Post and is the author of a great new book called The Triumph of Nancy Reagan, uh, which I enjoyed reading immensely. Uh, So first of all, congratulations, because it is a wonderful book, Karen. Thank you. Thank you. I, uh, you know, she's a very controversial figure and people sort of, I think, think they made up their minds about her a long time ago. But uh, I, I just found her endlessly complex and uh, fascinating. Well, you know, the one of the things about the book, and we, we, you know, we can get into the the her impact on the presidency and so forth in, in in a little bit. But one of the things that really struck me, and you captured this so well, was that that it was a kind of a bridge to another era. the The beginning of the book, the story of her mother and her mother's life as an actress and the friends that she had, you know, who, who are kind of Hollywood royalty and, and the story of, 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 of Nancy Reagan, you know, after she goes to Smith going off and, and being part of that Hollywood scene is just, you know, it's, it's like watching a, an old movie, you know, it's, it's connecting us to a different era. And yet if all of that hadn't, been the life of Nancy Reagan, Ronald Reagan wouldn't have been president. And if Ronald Reagan wasn't president, the past 40 years of American history would have been dramatically different. No Ronald Reagan, no Donald Trump, no Ronald Reagan, you know, no income inequality, pick, pick, pick the influence that, that you'd like, no modern Republican party. And so it's it's just a you know to me in the in in one sense and this may be an observation less than a question but but you know draw, drawing a line from Spencer Tracy to Donald Trump was just not where I expected this book to go <laughs> but but yet it, there it is I I know I I actually found and even earlier than that I mean I had never heard of Ala Nazimova who was. Nancy, born Anne Frances Robbins's godmother. It turns out she was, when Nancy was born, a, a silent screen actress who was the highest paid actress in the world at the time, and also living this very unconventional, pretty open lifestyle as a lesbian. Um, you know, it's it's just, you know, all of these, yeah, the, the old Hollywood and the degree to which Reagan himself was a, a product of old Hollywood, but then how everything really, you know, that that world just vanishes in the 50s and, and he emerges from it into a completely new world. But one that I think he would not have been all that equipped to deal with either. I mean, it really took her to build 
the, the kind of scaffolding around his rise, which by the way, is something that her own mother also did for her adoptive father. Yeah, and I think the, the, the parallels between her adoptive father, Dr. Loyal Davis and, and Reagan, uh, both of whom are fairly conservative and the two most important men in her life, are are interesting, but they also, you know, going back to this 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 theme of another era, they connect to different values. And you know, I, I, I wasn't a fan of Ronald Reagan back in the day, but but it's it's very clear that different values were baked into the the cake back then, and different values imbued both of these men's personalities and her personality and whatever you think of Reagan, he was trying to live up to 1930s values, values that were promoted in Hollywood at the time. And some people look at them kind of cynically, but as I read the book, I, I, I really get the impression that that was a sincere aspiration. Do you, did, was that your impression as well? Oh, absolutely. And when you look at his childhood, I mean, he really was a product of the Midwest and, you know, a product of a lot of childhood trauma of his own as the son of an alcoholic who would just take this, this family from one really perilous situation to another. And part of Reagan's survival skill in that was to sort of live in this world that was sort of created for him by his mother. And again, where he could sort of retreat into, you know, a harsh way to say it is, you know, a, a reality that was just sort of a lot softer to the eyes than the actual reality that he was growing up in. And certainly that's what Hollywood also did for, for all of America in the 30s and the 40s. Yeah, but you know, also one of the things that comes through is that the, you know, the, the Ronald Reagan that comes through all of that uh, doesn't have what you would call a killer instinct. He's not a, he's, he's not a behind the scenes operator in the way that we think of a lot of people. And he doesn't have essentially the skill sets that might make him succeed in politics. And, and into this mix comes Nancy, um, not just as a wife, but truly as, not, I, I mean, I would go a step further, not, not even just as a partner, but as the other half of the Reagan equation. And they bond to each other because both of them had parents absent in, in child extremely tightly and, um, you know, create this kind of complex hole that then is able to become governor of California and, and president. But I mean, I, I, many people comment on it in your book, but I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the degree to which you think President Ronald Reagan wouldn't have existed without Nancy Reagan. Um, you know, I think his his conservatism was genuine. He, his governing philosophy was there. But what he truly, truly lacked was a, you know, an ability to deal with any sort of confrontation. Um, he, he needed an enforcer. He needed somebody who was more skeptical of the people around him than he was. And that really was the role 
that she played. You know, ironically enough for somebody who was so often so clueless about her own image, she was pretty on the mark about the people around him. And from the beginning, when somebody needed to go, she would make it happen. Uh, she was, as Edmund Morris told me, a street fighter. Uh, and, you know, you, you can see there's a legendary political consultant, Stuart Spencer, who was Reagan's first political consultant. And he talks about going out to lunch with Taft Schreiber at, you know, who had been one of Reagan's agents. So and saying, you know, this burned out actor is thinking about running for governor of California, to which Taft Schreiber tells Stu Spencer, a political consultant, well, if he's gonna do it, you're gonna have to find somebody who's capable of firing people because he is not. And really she plays that role again and again and again. And, and usually her instincts are very much on the mark. And the people who were smart enough to know this about her, the people like James Baker, who was the chief of staff or George Schultz, who was the secretary of state, really found her to be just an invaluable ally. And the people who, who you know, worked in her favor tended to disappear. Well, it's, you know, um, I, I think I was reading the, uh, there was a review of, of your book and, 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 and a recent book about Lady Bird Johnson in the Atlantic, and I was reading it. And there's a reference in the review to a historian who says, I don't care about the lives of first ladies. And I, and I, and I read that and I, you know, I thought, well, that's a pretty stupid comment. Um, uh, but but the stupidity of the comment really is driven home by by the by your book. I, you know, I've written several books about how the White House works and try to get to the point that, you know, people talk about politics or process or or policy, but in the end it's always people. And and what makes power, you know, what makes our government function is a handful of people who have the trust of the president who influence the president. And, and, you know, there was nobody, I mean, and, and you mentioned James Baker and, and George Schultz, these guys are sort of titans of, of Washington over the past 50 years, but there was nobody who was a more important advisor to Ronald Reagan than Nancy Reagan. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, trust, the thing is Ronald Reagan trusted everybody. He was a famously detached manager, a delegator. Um, she trusted nobody. And when she believed somebody had betrayed her husband, she, she didn't care how loyally they had served him or, or anything. Um, and so people often talk about the first term of the Reagan administration as having been run by a troika of, of James Baker, the chief of staff, Michael Deaver, the deputy chief of staff, and Ed Meese, counselor to the president, the, the real ideologue of the three. Um, William Clark, who was one of Reagan's national security advisors who got crossways with Nancy. She is one of the reasons Reagan went through a half dozen national security advisors. Uh, in an oral history I found at the Miller Center at the University of Virginia, uh, Bill Clark says the real troika in the White House was Baker, Deaver, Nancy. 
Um, yeah, and and you know the 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 no nobody is cannier about how Washington works than James Baker, and he seemed to pick up on that instantaneously. Uh, but she also seemed to zero in on him as chief of staff, although it was a kind of an unlikely choice. Um, and put you know there you, there's a scene in your book where she's kind of saying go talk to him now. You know, she's kind of, she's kind of puppet master and in, in, in making this happen. And in fact, if I recall the scene correctly, um, Reagan's first and uh, one of several unsuccessful national security advisors, Richard Allen, who's a advisor on the plane is like, what's going on here? But she, but she was, you know, the, 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 there's no Reagan without Nancy Reagan. There's there's no Reagan administration without James Baker. And she made that happen. Yeah, people don't realize that. Uh, so 1980, the campaign's coming to a close. It's beginning to become clear that he's going to win. They are actually going to have to start thinking about how to run the White House. The assumption is that Ed Meese, who was chief of staff in Sacramento, is going to be chief of staff in the White House as well. In fact, Ed Meese is passing around organization charts of how it's all gonna work. Um, Stu Spencer, Deaver, and Nancy all don't think this is gonna work. One, Meese is too disorganized. Number two, he's very, he's so ideological. So at that point, James Baker is pretty much a stranger to the Reagans. He's come along as part of George H.W. Bush's entourage. They know him primarily as an adversary from the 76 campaign and from the Republican primary. But Spencer and Deaver suggest maybe, why don't we just put this guy on the plane and you can just see how comfortable you feel with him. And Nancy immediately takes to him. Uh, Baker told me she's the reason he gets the job. And again, it's a very unlikely pick because he is brand new to Reagan's orbit and doesn't really know the Reagans all that well, but she really sees in him kind of a skill set that she thinks is going to be needed in this White House. And again, with not just on her own, I mean, this is Deaver and, and Spencer are very much of like minds, but it takes Nancy to actually make it happen. The most Shakespearean of the Nancy um, uh, Reagan behind the scenes confrontations, I think, has to do with uh, Don Regan, who um, uh, succeeded uh, Baker as the chief of staff. They did this famous switch, I guess, and Baker went to Treasury and 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 Regan had been the former head of uh, Merrill Lynch um, and kind of an imperious guy and kind of came in there and said, I, you know, you know, a la Sherman Adams, you know, I'm the I'm the chief of staff, I'm the deputy president. And that didn't wash with her and it turned into kind of an ugly mess. Can you talk a little bit about what your sure. what your view is on that confrontation? Yeah, I would argue that Regan almost styled himself as the prime minister. Um, and he was very autocratic. He was also quite sexist. Um, Nancy was doing to him what she always did, which is, you know, pounding him with, you know, constant phone calls, her advice, what she thought wasn't going well. Um, and at one point he tells her, you know, 
if you have anything to say to me, why don't you talk to my deputy? And she's going, you know, Don, I don't really see any need for an intermediary. They, they clash almost from the outset when Reagan has his colon cancer surgery in the summer of 1985. Reagan wants him back on the job. She thinks he needs more time to recuperate. Uh, so they don't get along at all. But you get to the end of 1986, Iran-Contra breaks. And I really think the Iran-Contra chapter is the heart of my book. Um, Reagan thinks it's gonna work out fine. He's the perpetual optimist. He says he didn't do anything wrong. And she goes into full crisis mode. First of all, she starts pounding her husband. They have huge arguments about how he needs to shake up the entire White House staff, starting at the top. And it gets to the point where, you know, Reagan is screaming at her, get off my back. Uh, Reagan is picking up the phone and it's Nancy on the other end of the line saying, oh, Don, are you still here? Um, but finally she wins this battle. Regan gets fired, but then she has another battle, which is to bring her husband to the point where he can acknowledge in the Iran-Contra scandal that if we can remind younger people, it involved selling arms to our enemy, Iran in exchange essentially as hostage ransom payments for US citizens being held hostage in the Middle East. And then the money was being illegally diverted into helping the Contras who were battling against the leftist Sandinista government in Nicaragua. I mean, it, Reagan keeps insisting he didn't do anything wrong. This was a diplomatic opening. Finally, she has to bring him to the point where he is willing to admit to the country in a nationally televised address that he did indeed trade arms for hostages. And he has to admit it to himself. And she, at this point, there's a real danger that you know people could go to jail over this. So she doesn't trust anybody in the West Wing to write this speech. She doesn't know who was in on this, who wasn't. She goes out, gets her own, her own speechwriter to write the speech. She sneaks John Tower, the head of an investigatory commission, into the residence through a tunnel that I didn't know about that went from the Treasury Department to the, the East Wing uh, Tower. And this is pretty questionable ethically because he's supposed to have just been running the independent investigation is explaining to the president how deep trouble he is truly in here. But they do finally get Reagan to the point where he gives this very, very famous speech, acknowledges to the country what he did wrong. His polling numbers go up overnight by nine percentage points. I mean, people compare it to Kennedy and, and the Bay of Pigs speech. Um, yeah, it, it it also I thought was very revealing episode because frankly, it it's not just about her stepping in; it's about Reagan's capability as president when she didn't step in, and that you know he needed several Nancy Reagans. He didn't have them. He was not hands on enough, and you know his the story of his National Security Council is one uh, of 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 a National Security Council that was adrift because he just was not attentive to it. 
of course, when she blows up Don Regan, he tries to blow her up, uh, which gets kind of to the, you know, the one, one of the stories that, you know, people talk about with uh, astrology, you know, you talk about her sort of tone deafness with her own image. Um, uh, and that, to me, comes you know, across a little bit because she's so focused on his image. Um, but talk a little bit about how Don Reagan, uh, Regan then tried to blow up Nancy Reagan. Well, so Regan, while Ronald Reagan is still in office, I was really struck by how many blistering tell-all books there were written during and in the years right after the Reagan administration by insiders. Um, but while he is still in office, Regan writes a tell-all book that begins with this revelation that just seems almost too wacky to believe, which is that the first lady has entrusted many details of the president's schedule to an astrologer in California. And it becomes just a huge controversy. Um, I, I try to sort of though, take it back to, she's, she's an anxious personality from start to finish for her entire life. She, she lives with this fear of abandonment that goes back to her childhood. So I try to take readers through the day Reagan got shot at some points, minute by minute by minute. So people could really understand how close to death he was and how completely traumatized this woman, this anxious woman who always thinks the bottom of her world is ready to drop out was by this and how fearful she is that every time he sets foot outside the White House, there's somebody else out there waiting to finish off the job that John Hinckley started. Um, Reagan always had this religious belief that God had preserved him for a reason. And she didn't have that to rely on. She really didn't come from that much of a religious tradition. So she is just like trying to grab onto anything no matter how irrational it is that could sort of give her a, a sense of control. And that's how she ends up with the astrologer. In the first term, Michael Deaver handles it, keeps it all a secret. Oh, Air Force One's taking off at two o'clock tomorrow morning. Let's just tell the press it's for jet lag. Um, but in the second term, it becomes known to more people in the White House uh, James Baker told me, yeah, I knew about it, but I just let Deaver handle it. But, but Regan has his, his calendar on his desk. Every day is marked green, yellow, or red, like a, like a traffic signal, because this is what the astrologer has said. The president can leave the house, the White House today. No, he should stay home. And he blows the, the lid on the whole thing. And it, it is his revenge and very effective against Nancy Reagan. Yeah, it's one of the things that people remember. Although I have to say, when you think back on the attacks on Nancy Reagan for um, uh, $200,000 worth of China that she bought or wearing a $10,000 dress or consulting an astrologer, it does seem kind of quaint and charming. <laughs> you know, I mean, it does, you know, you, fought, you come out of the Trump era 
where the, the question is, you know, did the president betray the country? You know, are there 24 women who've accused him of sexual abuse? How many people are corrupt, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not to say that there weren't some controversies within the Reagan administration that were material, but, but, but that stuff sort of seemed kind of silly. <laughs> it's you know it's it's you know I mean it's it's old school I I guess Washington g- gossip um, you know one of the things that was always striking to me you know in writing histories of the NSC was that you get after the Iran Contra period you um, have the Tower Commission you replace them you get in people like Frank Carlucci and Colin Powell into the NSC uh, Howard Baker into the White House. And and uh, as as chief of staff, and the one thing that is seldom discussed very much is from the colon cancer surgery onward, Reagan was kind of in decline, and there was an awareness among his cabinet that he was not as with it as he was before. I'm not saying that he had sunken into sunk into Alzheimer's, but but the last two years were different from the first six years. And she played a big role in that. How did you, how did you see what her role was like as she entered into kind of more of this sort of quasi Edith Wilson role? Well, I, I do, you know, I, I laid out as sort of dispassionately as I could when it was the true incapacitation from Alzheimer's sets in. And I'm not so sure it was that market while he was in the White House, but he was an older man. When he leaves the White House, he has been shot. He has had cancer. Um, he, he, you know, and I do think once he survives Iran Contra, you do see the whole focus turning to and he still has a lot to accomplish, including uh, the final summits with Gorbachev. And Nancy Reagan's role in all of that, I, I begin the book on that because I think people have never really recognized how important she was to the thawing of relations with the Soviet Union. But it is sort of her focus begins to shift on their life after the presidency, his place in history, um, something that I think mattered, quite frankly, to her a lot more than it did to him. Um, and, And again, I think foreign policy is very important those last two years, primarily because of how much business got done with the Soviet Union. Um, including, you know, an arms control agreement that was very, very controversial with the right. Um, so there's still stuff getting done, but yeah, they are they are moving out by 1980, the middle of 1987. They they are looking past the White House. Yeah, and I, I remember talking to Carlucci and Colin Powell, and they were kind of like, you know, there were some days where it was like. But let's just not bother him today. You know, let's let's not engage on that. Of course, you know, next into the White House were the Bushes, and and Nancy Reagan didn't really have a great relationship with the Bushes, did she? 
No, this is like her battles with Barbara Bush are are really, I think some of the, some of the if you want juicy parts in the book, those, those are pretty good. I mean, these two women couldn't stand each other, partly going back to the 1980 campaign. And Barbara Bush, Nancy, as I said, was a street fighter. Barbara Bush could dish it as well as take it. Um, Barbara Bush never lets her forget whose husband she thinks ought to be in the Oval Office and instead of attending funerals of foreign leaders. Um, but I also think there is something about Barbara Bush that triggers a lot of Nancy Reagan's insecurities because Barbara Bush has roots that go back to the Mayflower. She too has a closet full of designer clothes, but she is just lavished with glowing press coverage. She's America's grandmother. Uh, the Bush family is close-knit. They all like each other. The Reagan family is whatever word can take you past dysfunctional. Um, so I think part of that is going on as well, that, that just the chemistry there between the two of them, in part because there was so much about Barbara Bush that, that triggers all of Nancy Reagan's self-doubts and insecurities it is, it's kind of interesting because it's 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 definitely class struggle and and when i read about it i thought about the scenes of nancy reagan uh, as nancy davis at smith college and that there are these two women who are kind of seven sisters you know uh, uh, uh graduates but Wait, no, no. Nancy Davis actually graduated. Right, right, right. Barbara but, Bush drops out her freshman year. And so it really annoys Nancy that Smith refuses to give her an honorary degree, but they give one to Smith dropout Barbara Bush. Yeah, well, and I, I guess what I meant to say was, was products because Barbara Bush belonged in that Seven Sisters environment. Nancy Davis was a kind of Aravist and Barbara Bush and George Bush were kind of white shoe Republicans of a certain variety. And Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan brought in the West Coast Republicans, a, a whole different group of Republicans who subsequently took over the party. You know, yeah. that it, and she really, it really was important to Nancy Reagan that her husband not be seen as some kind of hip shooting cowboy from the West. You know, she really wanted him to have the respect of the establishment. It's one reason she spends so much time, you know, sort of consorting with the Georgetown elite that, uh, you know, that, that a lot of people on the right just couldn't abide. But, but it was important to her. That she, she defined success in a very conventional way. And by the way, I think it also factors into why do you pick James Baker? Why do you support or develop a relationship with George Shultz? But, um, I, you know, we, we, I could go on and on about this. I really love the book. I love the Oh, I am experience. so happy. Thank you so much. Because it, it is a complex book and it does really require people to sort of suspend what it is they think they know. Well, that I mean, it gets to my, my, my last question because I and I can't help but read anything now in the context of where we are. I can't, you know, I, I look at it because I'm looking for clues. And the Reagan administration has a lot of clues on how we got to where we are now. And, and you know, which I see, and I, I, I'd, I'd like to think in a fairly objective way as a moment, a, a 
of, of, of reckoning for democracy in America. Um, and, you know, would, wouldn't have existed without Nancy Reagan. And, and by the way, neither would the kind of the mythical Ronald Reagan that, that emerged, you know, in his, while he was in office and after, you know, that he was, you know, that was the party of Lincoln bef before Reagan came around after Reagan and it was the party of Reagan. Um, it, to, to what, is that her legacy? Is that the, you know, where you look and say um, the, the, the mythical Reagan uh, is, is, is a product of, of Nancy Reagan or is there something else you think is her legacy? Um, again, I think she deserves credit in a lot of very specific policy areas. I mean, who would have thought of her as a force in foreign policy? Um, but I do think her ideology, to the degree she had any at all, was what's good for Ronald Reagan. Um, I mean, I, I mean, yes, I understand people who draw a through line from Reagan to where we are today, but. I, I would also remind people he won 49 states in 1984. If you can imagine any political figure today who could win, you know, 40. Um, and also that his brand of conservatism was ultimately optimistic. It really was about making the country sort of get back its swagger and believe in itself, which to me seems so counter to, for instance, what Donald Trump was selling. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And in fact, there are, there's, a, there's a faint echo, although we are a much more divided country, uh, in, in the way Joe Biden is approaching things. And that, you know, you look at the 65, 70% support many of his policies have. And they're, you know, you, in the back of your mind, you wonder, is our Biden Republicans a thing? You know, is that is that emerging in the way that Reagan Democrats were a thing? You know, could that really change things if he has a couple more big successes? Well, except I, Reagan had a really bad first midterm, and you know, 1982 was a disaster for the Republicans. Biden's not going to have that option. You know, he's yeah, going to get stuff really done faster. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't know if Biden's going to. Not only is Biden not going to have that option, I'm not sure we're going to have that option because if we go and sort of kick back into full-fledged Trumpism in 2022, this Indian summer of of Biden's you know successes is going to fade quickly, and we're going to be in a in a world of hurt. I think. Uh, well, that's a subject for another another day. I, what I'd really like to do is I'd really like to encourage all of our listeners out there who are people who are kind of obsessed with topics like this to go and get The Triumph of Nancy Reagan by Karen Tumulty. Um, obviously follow what Karen writes in the Washington Post uh, because she's really one of our most thoughtful commentators, but this book's terrific. And uh, not only will you learn a lot from it, but to me, it was a bit of a vacation. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> to me, it was just, you know, going back into this, this other, other, kind of an era and uh uh and seeing it with new eyes because you know i mean you and i are the exact same age we, we i was there watching it from afar but see i you know seeing it with with the, the the perspective that you bring to it is really extremely helpful so congratulations thank you very very much 
to all of our listeners, uh, again, the book is The Triumph of Nancy Reagan. Uh, the author is Karen Tumulty. And, uh, you know, if you want to find out what else we've got going on, go to the DSRnetwork.com. We've got a lot of interesting things coming next week and beyond. And if you feel so inclined, click on membership and support what we're doing here. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you, Karen. And uh, stay healthy, everybody. <laughs>